Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning and Shavua Tov. Hello, Madeline. So nice to see you. So here we are, and we are um, continuing with our exploration of the Shemona Esri in order to be able to deepen our kavana when we dub in this very important prayer every day. I just wanted to mention again that the learning for the month of Kisle was sponsored by a dear friend of mine from Brooklyn, New York, who lived across the street from us back in the day. And... Um, Sponsored by Gail Weiss and family, who now live in Teaneck, New Jersey, in memory of her dear parents, survivors of the Holocaust, who raised a beautiful family, Shomer Toro Mitzvos. So last week, we finished the prayer, the second of the prayers in, in the Shona Esrei, which we said corresponds to Yitzchak Avinu. And... We also said that each of the Avon instituted a different time of prayer. Avraham was responsible for the morning, Yitzchak for the middle of the afternoon, and Yaakov for um, Marev. So before we leave Yitzchak behind, I just want to read you to, to you something that I took out of the Mishpacha many months ago that I really liked about tefillah. And I think it goes well <clears throat> with what we said about Yitzchak, which is that Yitzchak represents discipline. And the whole bracha that corresponds to Yitzchak is called Gevura, right? The ability to restrain oneself, the ability to be disciplined. And we said that there's no other tefillah like the afternoon prayer that requires that kind of ability to pull yourself away from the busyness of the day and take time out for God to realize again, to get out of that ego-centered place and to get back into that God-centered consciousness, which is the work that every Jew is required to do. We're required to be God-infatuated, God-obsessed, if you like. You know, if you think of any kind of infatuation you had with anybody in your life, where you couldn't stop thinking about them, you were wondering what they were doing, you were wondering if they were thinking of you, whatever it was, right? You can take that and use that as the way every Jew should feel about Hashem. Totally infatuated, totally obsessed. So pulling ourselves out of our day. So this is by Rabbi Moshe Grilak, who writes in the Mishpach, and he says, right in the middle of the workday, A man abandons his phone, his computer, all the devices that hold him in bondage throughout his working hours. He leaves his desk and tells his secretary he won't be available for the next 15 minutes because it's time for him to pray. He stands in front of a blank wall and seems to address it, murmuring words to someone he can't see. Yet he has no doubt that he's doing something of great significance, something that sustains the entire world, in fact. Our murmuring man would surely identify with these remarks by Rabbi Yitzhak Cook. 
Quote, tefillah is an absolute necessity for us and for the entire world. It is also the most efficacious form of pleasure, raising our neshama like the flowing waves. We desire from ourselves and from the world a level of perfection that our limited reality cannot give us. Tefillah literally revitalizes the spirit. Prayer, then, is not just our lips murmuring words by rote. It's an offering to God, a service of the heart. The world's fate depends on it. And it is also the greatest of pleasures, actually giving life to the human soul. So the three times of prayer correspond to the three times of day that we eat. In the same way that we nourish our bodies with food, prayer is the nourishment of the soul. And as we go into the next bracha, which is the bracha that corresponds to Yaakov, we're taking the ideas of Avraham and Yitzchak. Like we said, Avraham is chesed, Yitzchak is gevura, and Yaakov is the synthesis of the two extreme opposites or seeming opposites, chesed and gevura, and the proper balance of these two, which results in what we call MS truth, which also corresponds to the idea of beauty, because beauty also represents symmetry and balance, often between two opposing forces. Okay, so this is, um, we're, so just an idea, first of all, that if, when we begin the Shemona Esri, we are invoking the Avot. We are asking Hashem to listen to our tefillos, because we are the Enochach. We are the Enochach of the foundations of the world, of the people who brought God down into this world. And we're going to talk more about that um, Kiddush of Judaism, that the Jews were the first not to see God as something that stays up there in his realm and has nothing to do with this world, but actually believes that God exists in this world and that heaven can exist on earth. This is a totally, profoundly um, new idea that still remains completely unique to the Jewish people. Okay, first of all, Shlomo HaMelech said about Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov that they're like a three-ply cord and that a three-ply cord is not easily severed. So this is our foundation. Just to talk a little bit about the third bracha as we go into it, we said that the third bracha, which is the main theme of this bracha, the main theme of the last bracha was the idea of of the resuscitation of the dead, of the fact that Hashem helps us when we fall, literally in this world, and ultimately, at the end of days, he will literally pick us up from our graves and bring us back to life. In this world, he he, he, he supports those who are fallen through challenges, through difficulties, through the trials and errors of living, right? He, he lifts up those who are ill, those who are, are in need of healing. Matir Asurim, he releases those who are imprisoned, who are trapped, who can't get out. So all of these are expressions of Gevura. 
In the bracha with Yaakov, our focus is going to be on Kedusha. And what is Kedusha? What is holiness, according to Judaism? So this week works out perfectly. Our parshas work out perfectly with our place in Shimona Esri, because, of course, this week and last week and uh, next few weeks all include our Avot, uh, our or Abba Yaakov Avinu. And of course, we learned so much about him. But I want to pick out a couple of ideas that uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Olive Shalom, brings down. And um, so we know in this week's Parsha, Yaakov is about to meet, or last week's Parsha, he, he's about to meet his brother Asaph, who 22 years earlier has vowed to kill him. We also know that he struggles with an angel at night and tries to destroy him. So the Parsha is all about the different struggles. And Yaakov's life is full of struggles. But one of the questions that uh, is asked is, why does the angel wait and attack specifically Yaakov? Wouldn't it have been more um, powerful if the angel, and this angel who is called Samael, represents everything that is evil in this world, right? Uh, the Yetzahara, the Malachamaves, the angel of death, right? And he comes and attacks Yaakov. So there's a question that's asked, why wait for Yaakov? If, if the Jewish people are starting, you know, attack Avraham before we can, we can become stronger. Because like we said, a three-cord, a three-tiered, um, a three-ply cord is not easily severed. So why wait till Yaakov? So very simply speaking, Avraham represents chesed. Yitzchak represents prayer, avoda. But Yaakov is representative of Torah, right? We say, al shlosha devarim ha'olam omeid, it says in the Mishnah and Pirkei Avos. The world stands on three things, Torah, avoda, and gemilut chasadim. The angel wasn't so worried about chesed. You know, there's a lot of people who do chesed. That's great. There are a lot of Jews who are humanists. They don't practice Judaism. They don't believe in Judaism, perhaps, but they believe in doing acts of kindness. They believe in random acts of kindness. They believe that kindness is very important to be a good human being. When it comes to tefillah, right, there are many, many nations, many religions, many people who practice solitude, um, you know, contemplation of their navel, if you like, you know, uh, meditative practices and things that transcend them out of this miserable world that we live in, in order to feel the divine. And that didn't worry the angel either. But Torah, which is specifically what the Jews brought into the world, what makes us and gives us our identity and our ability to survive, that represents Yaakov. And that is when the angel came into action and said, this I have to stop. And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs mentions that in communities where they built chesed organizations and beautiful shuls, but they did not take care of the educational framework of Torah properly, these communities did not last. So this is the message of the angel, or one of the messages of the angel coming and attacking Yaakov 
and not Abraham or Yitzchak when things would have been seemingly a lot weaker because there's nothing to fear about chesed and tefillah. But Torah, Eitz Chaim Hila Machazikim Ba, it's the tree of life for those who hold on to it. It's what keeps us alive. It's our very breath. It's compared to air. It's compared to water. It's, it is our very survival. Okay, so... So this bracha kedusha corresponds to Yaakov. So let's ask ourselves, why is it? Why does Yaakov represent holiness? So the first reason is because all of Yaakov's sons were holy and righteous. Right? We know that Abraham had Yishmael, Yitzchak had Esav, and it was because there was, again, chesed um, in its... Chesed, if not tempered by Gevura, can result in a Yishmael. Okay? Gevura, if not tempered properly with Chesed, can result in an Esav. But Yaakov, who was the proper synthesis and balance of both, had 12 holy sons who became the 12 Shvatim of the Jewish people. Another idea about um, Yaakov that we learn in this week's Parsha, and it begins with that, is that um, Yaakov sends angels ahead to Esav, and he tells them he tells them to tell Esav to inform Esav that in Lavan Garti, that I was living with Lavan for the last twenty-two years, and what he was basically saying to Esav is, "Don't mess with me, because if I could survive in Lavan's house as an upstanding Jew." then I've got a lot of power. And the Rashi says there that the words in Lavan Garti, Gimel Resh Taf Yud, if you rearrange the letters of the word Garti, it spells the word or the number Taryan, which equals 613. So what Yaakov Avinu was sending a message was, in Lavan Garti, the Taryag Mitzvah Shamarti. I live with love in that sinister, trickster, uh, you know, low life, who did all kinds of things that were devious and underhanded, whose whole well, whose whole Weltanschung involved materialistic uh, gain. But I did not learn from his ways, and this is part of what kedusha is all about, because the definition of holiness is to influence but remain un uninfluenced by corruptive influences. It's to be involved, but to be able to be a part. Literally, the word kadosh, le kadesh, means to separate. When someone is holy, it means they're separate, right? We're called the am kadosh. We are a holy nation. Why? Because God separated us from the other nations of the world. Shabbos is called Shabbos Kodesh because Shabbos is separated from the rest of the week. We make Kiddush at the beginning of Shabbos. We make Kiddush again when Shabbos ends to show again a separation 
between the end of Shabbos and the beginning of the weeks of the mundane. There's an expression that somebody once said about the Jewish people that if, a Jew, if the Jewish people don't make Kiddush, then the Goyim will make Havdalah. Right? That when the Jewish people forget who they are, when they forget to separate themselves from the nations around them and not be pulled into the corruptive influences, then the nations themselves will make Havdalah. They'll remind us that we are supposed to remain separate. They'll give us a good kick and send us on our way. And we know that this is the cycle of Jewish history over and over again. Whenever the Jewish people rise to power, whenever we become very uh, comfortable in our host city or country, and we, uh, we begin to feel very much at home, and we begin to forget who we are and how we're supposed to behave, and that we're supposed to be different and separate, that is when the Goyim remind us that we have a mission in this world. And that if we don't remember what it is, they'll make sure that we don't forget because we're all in the same boat and we're the drivers, we're the captains of the ship. And the Goyim anti-Semitism is part of the collective unconscious of the non-Jews because they too understood that when the Jewish people said Naseh Nishma, they took responsible for, responsibility for the entire world. And so when we begin to act more German than the Germans, right? More Roman than the Romans, more Greek than the Greeks, which is what Hanukkah is all about. That's when the Goyim themselves, God takes a few steps away from us. And in that vacuum, the non-Jews are able to come in and remind us of the promise that we made which is to bring the entire world to redemption. And we're going to talk more about that. Okay. We also have in this week's Parsha that Yaakov goes back over the river Yabok to go and get his Ketonus Pasim, these small little jugs of clay that he's left on the other side of the river. And here too, we have this idea of Kedusha, of holiness, that even material objects, According to Judaism, the entire material world, let alone these little jugs that may have been worth a few pennies, are infused with Kedusha. That everything we have in this world is meant for us to use, to elevate, to take the physical world and bring it to a level of Ruchnias, to bring heaven down to earth, if you like, and earth up to heaven. And so, you know, he goes back because all possessions are important. I like to say he was like my mother, you know, he could never throw anything out. I bet you have a few mothers like that or yourselves. <laughs> it's a Jewish trait. It all comes from these Katonis Pasim, I think. Um, so that's the idea of Kedusha related to truth, which Yaakov's name represents truth, is that all mundane material matter a person is supposed to take, which is of non-eternal existence, and we're supposed to put them in an eternal perspective. And 
and they are totally negated and subjugated to Hashem. And when a person sees their material possessions this way, then everything that they're doing and all of the things that they're using in this world become part of eternity. The physical, which seems so dross and so gross and so heavy, becomes spiritual. And that's the Jew's role in this world, is to take that which is the greatest pull, pulling a person down, right? When we make a beautiful Shabbos table and we put on our best clothing for Yantiv and Shabbos, we're taking the physical world and we're raising it up to a level of eternity. You know, they say that in the world of chickens, you know, if we could hear the chickens fighting in the chicken coop, they're fighting over, I want to be shechted to be on a Jewish Shabbos table. Because I know that if it's a bunch of Jews eating me on Friday night, my nefesh behema, my chicken soul, is really going to reach a very high place in the next world. Right? Because on a Kabbalistic level, you know, there's all kinds of ideas about people trapped in animals and souls that are trapped in animals. God forbid you could be trapped in a rock, you could be trapped in an inanimate object, you could be trapped in a plant, right? I mean, these are real concepts in Judaism. So korbano, or chickens on the Shabbos table, their souls were released in a higher place and brought back to heaven. And we're able to be redeemed, so to speak, only through the Jewish practice of, of that ability to take something that is physical and bring it to its spiritual, um, fuse it with spirituality so that it becomes part of infinity, part of eternity. Okay, I'm, I'm levitating off my chair right now. I gotta, I gotta get back down to earth here. Okay, um, so... I wrote here about Rabbi Leff, uh, Rabbi Leff, who wrote a book about um, Shmona Esrei. So he tells a story about this idea that we're supposed to use all of our wealth, all of our material possessions, and raise them up and infuse them with holiness. And of course, the more we have, the more responsibility that we have, the more accountability that we have. God is simply lending us from his treasury and he's saying, I gave you the job to bring it back up. And, and it's a big job. So let's hear about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was one of the wealthiest people that ever lived among the Jewish people. Um, one, once we were in Israel and my husband and I were just driving around and we ended up in a place, in a park, in the middle of some tiny little town in northern Israel. And we stumbled upon these caves, maybe you've been there, where Yehuda Hanasi is buried. And anyway, there above his cave, the tour guide put a flashlight and he showed that in the stone you could see ten fingers etched into the clay of the stone. And the story that's famous about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is like this, that prior to his death, Chazal tell us in the Gemara and Ksubos, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi lifted his ten fingers heavenward and proclaimed that God was his witness, that he did not derive pleasure from the material world with even one finger. And yet the Gemara relates that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi had all the delicacies of food and drink on his table all year round. 
Rav Tzadok Akohen of Lublin resolves the seeming contradiction in another place. Rav Tzadok differentiates between deriving pleasure from materialistic pursuits and at the same time utilizing them for Hashem's service. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi ate all the delicacies, but he derived no personal, selfish, hedonistic pleasure, but rather consumed them as a Jewish table is supposed to be, like an altar, as sacrifices offered on the altar that he represented totally subjugated to Hashem. And that's why Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was called Rabbeinu HaKodesh. The Mesila Shisharim says further that it's the significance of the stones fighting to have Yaakov lay, on, lay his head on them. If you remember in last week's Parsha, Yaakov puts 12 stones around him and they fight. They all want the tzaddik to put um, their head on, on his head on them. It says the reason for this is the true tzaddik and holy person elevates all the physical entities he comes in contact with. And those entities vie to reach their fulfillment through the tzaddik. Jewish people are called a mamlechet kohanim and a goy kadosh. So how does one acquire holiness? So Rashi says the way you acquire holiness is you separate yourself from immorality. The Ramban, Nachmanides says, you make yourself holy by restricting yourself even from things that are permissible. In other words, not overindulging, minimizing pleasure. One of the 48 ways to wisdom is minimizing pleasure. <laughs> you find in the Mishnah Pirkei Avos. For example, you're allowed to drink, right? A lot of religions, they don't even allow drinking. We drink, we take Kiddush, which has the possibility of making a person ois mensch. And we say that which could make a person ois mensch, we raise it up to the highest level and bring it to a place of Hashem. I remember my best friend was Baptist next door, growing up in St. Catharines, and they did not touch a drink of wine. And then there were my other friends who were less religious, whose parents had to put a line on the bottles whenever they went on vacation, right? And when I come home and tell my father, you know, he'd say, that's the way they are because they don't understand drink. They don't know how to control it. It's either we can't have it at all, or we're going to have too much. But you kids have been drinking Kiddush since you were born with your bris. Because we know how to take the physical and bring it into the spiritual. That is the Jewish Hochman. So, you know, there's an idea that the Rambam talks about of Naval Doshus HaTorah that there are people who are degenerates with permission of the Torah. What does this mean? It means they make sure they eat all the right hexures and they even eat extra and they have humras on everything that they eat, but they weigh 500 pounds. They are obsessed with their own physical pleasures. 
And so it's called Naval Birshusator. Yes, you're wearing the right, you know, length of skirt. You're wearing the right length of thing, but it's maybe a little bit too tight. Maybe it's, a, but you're, according to the laws, you're doing things right, but you're missing the spirit of the law. The laws are supposed to inform how we're supposed to be a holy people. So, you know, you're keeping kosher, but, you know, you have to eat at the best steak restaurants. And if things aren't exactly the way you like them, you're not going to eat them because you're an Epicurean. That is not a Jewish idea. Okay. So the Rambam describes a person like this as disgusting within the parameters of the law. He keeps the Torah, perhaps, but he doesn't become a Torah personality. When I was studying in Israel at uh, Robertson Weinberg, she had a, a sign on the wall, which I just always uh, referred to, which she said, Jew, where it said, Jewish, ed Jewish education is not information, but transformation. And that's true of Judaism right? If a person is genuflecting and keeping the mitzvot dryly, but they don't understand, as Barshlomo Karlbach says, hold on, where is it? One second, I want to get this because this will be perfect right here. In, his, in the book that was written about him, uh, Holy Brother, which is an amazing read. No. He writes about this idea. He says, we have 613 mitzvot, 613 laws. I don't like the word laws because they are not laws. The word law reminds you of police. Some straight character sitting there telling you what to do. Very bad translation. Mitzvah means that God gave us 613 ways to come close to him. The ways are divided into two parts. 240 ways of reaching God by doing certain things. And 365 ways of reaching him by not doing certain things. If there is a red light and I don't go... Nothing happens, right? I just don't cross the street. However, if God's red light flashed and I stop when I have a chance to do wrong, then something happens inside me. Something happened to me. I walked a few steps higher. So in the Masilis Yisharim, written by the Ramchal, says that another method of attaining Kedusha is to first practice precious. In other words, what the Ramban, Ramban says, that a person should um, separate himself even from permissible pleasures for a while. In other words, try not to overindulge. I mean, listen, we all... We all, as women, we're always dieting, right? 
we all want to look great. We all want to fit into our clothing. And, you know, it's such a battle. But again, when we look at it as a spiritual practice, right, that we want to do not only what's good for our bodies, but what's good for our souls, what's good for our character, which is not to be uh, an evid to the food, but to be the master over the food. I remember my sons went through a certain period. I guess in yeshiva, they teach them this. They went through a certain period where they said, you're not supposed to put your head. It's probably etiquette anyway. You're supposed to sit straight and bring the food to your mouth as opposed to putting your head down and shoveling the food into your mouth. And I'm sure the Queen of England eats like that. But the point is, as my mother used to say, you're never going to Buckingham Palace. I would be like, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the point is, is the idea is, is that my, my, my sons would say, it's like you're bowing to the food, right? You're not the master over the food. You want to be the master over your body. Like that motif we talked about of the horse and the rider. That the soul is the one that's in charge. That the spiritual part of us is the part that sits higher. That's the rider on the horse. That's directing the horse. And so when we try to infuse even our dieting with a little bit of a spiritual kavana, we bring it up to a whole nother level. It's part of being an amkadosh. It's part of being able to be master over the physical world and bring it to a level of spirituality. Okay. So, Masila Shisharm says, the way that you can attain Kedusha is to separate yourself for a certain time and slowly bring back the material world after you've learned to discipline yourself. Now, this is a principle the Rambam brings to in terms of character development. That if you want to change a mida, you want to change a certain character, you know, for 30 days you go to the opposite extreme. You restrain. You pull yourself back. You make a space that you don't enter. And only after you've mastered that for 30 days, they say it takes 30 days to change a meter, to chip away at something that you want to change. Then you bring it back and now you are in control. Okay. So the word Kedusha, Kadosh, again, means to set aside for a specific purpose. That's why marriage is called kiddushin, because you have now set, you, the two people getting married have now set themselves aside from everybody else in the whole world, that you belong to me and I belong to you. We set ourselves aside. That is kiddushin. Interestingly, which I think is fascinating, the same word, kadosh, Holiness is the same word for a harlot. And we talked about Dina today. I mean, in, in the Parsha too. Now she wasn't a harlot, but that's how the episode ends. When Yaakov is castigating his sons for the fact, Shimon and Levi, that they wiped out everyone in the, in the, in Shem, 
They said, what, we were allowed to let them treat our daughter, our, our, our sister like a harlot? The word harlot is Kadesha. It's the same Shorish as the word Kadosh. Why? Because a harlot is someone who was set aside for a specific purpose. Right? Okay, so let's look at the actual bracha. Ata kadosh v'shimcha kadosh u'kadoshim b'chol yom yihaluluka sela. Baruch ata Hashem hakel hakadosh. You are holy and your name is holy. What does that mean? You are holy and your name is holy. And holy ones praise you every day forever. Who are these holy ones? Who are they speaking about? Blessed are you Hashem, the holy God. Okay, again. The theme of this, clearly holy, right? Kedusha, holiness. So what does it mean, atakadosh? Hashem is holy. He's removed from our sphere of understanding. He's beyond our comprehension. We cannot know his essence. However, and that sort of implies he's up there, right? He's up there in heaven. He's so far beyond anything we could ever imagine. And this is very much how the non-Jewish nations of the world in their religions, even still today, think of God. They can't, you can't, you, you know, that's why they had to make a son who comes down and he's human and this and that, because, you know, we can't relate to that kind of a God. Or they had to create demigods or gods of the nature and gods of the rocks and pantheism and and all the rest of it, because it's too high for us. Or it was the idea that God is up there. He's not interested in this world. He can't be contained in this world. He has nothing to do with this world. Anyways, that's Ata Kadosh. However, the Jewish idea is Veshimcha Kadosh means Hashem has certain revealed aspects of his being. Right? Your name. You allow yourself to be known through your names. By the way, we have 72 different names to describe Hashem. Through the various names and attributes we call him by. For example, we have the name that, that connotes Rachami, mercy, right? Yudke Vavke. We have the name that connotes Deen, judgment and justice. We have the name Shakai that denotes... Um, What's, how can I express this? Protection or boundaries, putting boundaries on the world. I remember I was once out with a rabbi, a brilliant rabbi who was taking a whole, a bunch of us on a field trip through Israel. He, you know, we were sitting and taking a break and he pointed up to the tallest trees and he said, do you realize girls that if God had not said stop, the trees would have kept growing? That's the concept of Shakai, that if he hadn't told the waves to stay in, right, and not come up onto the beach and overflow everything, they would do that. But God set boundaries. Okay, so we know him by his names. In other words, even though Hashem is beyond this world, he's still involved with it. And this is his greatness. This is his greatness. Because God says, wherever you find my greatness, you will see my humility. The humility is that he interacts and interfaces with his creation, 
with his, if you want, lowly but incredibly, um, but 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 lowly but at the same time imbued with incredible potential, which is what the human being is. That's why, by the way, Yaakov Avinu's face is on the Kisei HaKavod, because Yaakov Avinu represents the heights to which a human being can raise himself through struggle, through struggle. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay, let's go back to the prayer. Ukadoshim b'chol yom sela. And your holy ones praise you every single day. Who are these kadoshim? So there's two opinions. One says it's the angels. It's the malachim who every single day we know in Perak Shira, right? We know that every day the angels are praising God. That's what they do all day long. All of, all of, human, all of, all of God's creation praises him, including the angels. It's a natural instinct. You know, when the dawn breaks and the rooster wakes up and says cock-a-doodle-doo, he's thanking God for another day. He's, Perak Shira will tell you exactly what, what each one is saying. The other is that it's the Jewish people who praise God every day. And of course, both are true. As a matter of fact, listen to this. The angels are not allowed to praise Hashem until the Jewish people do it first. Now, of course, the angels always see Hashem's oneness. They have total clarity. They have no free will. They're like soldiers in the army. Don't look right. Don't look left. Standing at attention at all times. The only place to go is forward. And that's why they're holy. They cannot do anything but do God's will. And that's why after this um, prayer, we have the Kedusha, right? When we have Hazar Sashats, when we go back through the Shona Esrei, we talk about the angels as Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. We stand with our feet together because we're imitating the angels as if we had one foot. We stand with our two feet together as if we have only one foot, like an angel, it says, only has one foot, meaning that it can't go to the right or the left. It has no choice. It can only do God's will. And we mimic the angels, right? And we say, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And of course, we raise our, our feet up three times to say, we're trying to elevate ourselves. We want to get off the ground. We're so pulled down by our bodies, by our material nature, by gravity, right? I've said this before that people say, you know, that it takes more... Um, takes more muscles to frown than to smile but I always said yeah but frowning goes with gravity you know like okay you know it's harder to smile even if it's less muscles because you're going against gravity <laughs> uh, anyway so kadosh 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 and what do those three words mean whenever we say anything in threes we're talking about infinity right chazak chazak benis chazak we're talking about something that keeps on going. It's like dot, dot, dot after it. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. It's as if the angels are constantly saying, kadosh, 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 that the world is infused with godliness, with kadusha. The kadosh up there, the kadusha that's down here, 
and the kedusha that's all around us, that's that's infused within us, within human beings. Okay, we understand God is filling all worlds. We can't comprehend a being outside of time and space. And that's why the angels can do this, but we're greater than the angels because we need to find Hashem. We need to find him hidden behind the physical world. In other classes, I've said the word Olam, Adon Olam, the Lord of the world. The word Olam is the same shorish as the word He'elam, which means to hide. The idea is that God created a physical world and then he hid himself behind it. And he says, come and find me. Come and look for me. Don't get drowned in the physical world. Don't think that the physical world and the spiritual world are separate. I'm right here. I'm hiding. Come and find me. We're greater than the angels because we have to find him hidden behind the physical world. And also we have to unify the spiritual and the material world. We have free will so that when we praise him, we do it out of choice. We do it out of recognition, intelligence, understanding, gratitude, all of those things which are the foundations of Emunah. And so when we praise Hashem, it means much, much more than when the angels do. When we do this, we're above the angels. However, when we use our free will and don't do it, we become lower than the animals, who we just said before, instinctively praise God. Every single morning and all through their day. Okay. So one more thing. Oh, here we are. Baruch atah Hashem hakel hakadosh. So like we said, every bracha ends with a bracha, and it is the malachim who said this, blessed are you Hashem, the holy God, at a certain event that they witnessed that was written down. So the angel said this when Yaakov had his first prophetic vision of the angels and the ladder, right? When he, when he falls asleep in this place, how awesome is this place where I slept? It was the place where the future Beit HaMikdash, Batei Mikdashim would be built. And Yaakov realizes it's the place where heaven and earth meet, the idea of the physical and spiritual world being intertwined, and he says, how awesome is this place? This is where the angel said, blessed are you, Hashem, the holy God, the one who comes down to earth and reveals himself to mankind. Hey, I just want to add to this something that I found fascinating on Shabbos. I was reading, thank you to Rhonda Marks, who lent me this book a few weeks ago, actually, before Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was nifter. She lent it to me. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about this idea because I find it fascinating. And it's this idea, again, that God is above, and this is a very Jewish idea, that God is above but also in the world. And that everything in the physical world is permeated with godliness. 
you know, there's, it's a Jewish idea that God is not just up, but he's also in. He's in everything. He's infused in everything, in the table, in the chair, in everything physical. Okay, so one of the, what is the significance of Yaakov's name being changed to Yisrael? We are not called the B'nai Avraham. We're not called the B'nai Yitzchak. We're called the B'nai Yaakov. And what does that name Yaakov represent? Sorry, what does the name Yisrael represent? Yisrael means literally one who has struggled with man and with God and has overcome. And this is the face that is on the throne, the Kisei HaKavod that Hashem sits on. Because what Yaakov and what the Jewish people represent that differs from every other religion in the world is that Judaism, unlike other religions, believes that redemption can be achieved on earth. That we are here to change the world. I remember when I used to ask my father, you know, do we believe in the next world? Do we believe in, like, what happens after I die, this and that? I mean, I, I wasn't happy with the answer, but I think this is what he was saying, which is such a Jewish view. He was saying, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We ha yeah, just be good now. You have to be good now. It's this world that matters, right? This is the world. This is the world of action. This is the world that matters, which is very much a Jewish idea because, Listen to this. Jewish people are obsessed by the striving after truth, justice, and happiness in this world. We believe we can bring heaven down to earth. Now, there was a famous historian who was a critic of Judaism, a Russian thinker. His name was Nikolai Berdyeyev. He lived from 1874 to 1948. He was a Russian intellectual. And he was very critical about Judaism. And um, he said, Jews and Judaism are profoundly wrong about the central question of human life. They were, he says, obsessed by the passionate idea of justice and its terrestrial fulfillment. They believed that redemption could be achieved on earth. The intense Jewish striving after truth, justice, and happiness was responsible for the perennial restlessness of the Jewish spirit and its often revolutionary expression. He believed that human destiny, whose pains and torments can in no wise be redeemed within the narrow limits of a single life, but rather will find its fulfillment in another life. Truth, justice, and happiness belong to heaven, not earth, the world to come, not this world the immortal soul, not the mortal body. He who believes in immortality ought to look soberly on terrestrial life and realize it's impossible to be uh, victorious over uh, sufferings, the evil and imperfections that, that are the inevitable lot of man. However, Judaism believes that sufferings, evil and imperfection are not the inevitable lot of man. They are not woven into the fabric of the universe. That God created and pronounced seven times good. Justice, freedom, human dignity, equality of respect, integrity, and compassion are to be fought for here, not in heaven. Interestingly, Berdyaev's view represents this concept of Gnosticism 
okay, uh, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S-M. A complex doctrine, however, that can be summarized very simply as this world bad, next world good, right? It's why Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, because basically the church taught the poor and the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the weak that, you know, don't worry, this world is a world of evil. This is the world where, but, you know, you will be, the meek will inherit, the meek will, will, will get their reward in the next world. You know, you just have to wait it out because this is an awful, horrible world and this is the way God wanted it to be, okay? Gnosticism played a considerable part in the early life of the church. Many previously lost Gnostic Gospels were discovered among the Naj Hammadi manuscripts found in Egypt in 1945, two years before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Gnostics, in fact, held that the physical universe was created by a lesser God, and that the true God, the God of the Spirit, has no place on Earth. It's a form of dualism. Anyway... Because we're so used to the Jewish approach, we forget how rare and difficult the Jewish approach is. It's interesting. He, he, Rabbi Jonathan Saxon says that in Europe, they did not develop an activist approach toward poverty and suffering, freedom and democracy, industry and economic growth, and the beginnings of a classless society until the 17th century. And that's because Christians started reading the Tanakh again. Made possible by the invention of the printing and the availability of Bibles and vernacular translation. This gave rise to Calvinism, the closest Christianity ever came to Judaism. And it was responsible for the English Revolution and the faith of the Pilgrim Fathers who created modern America. Just to end, because it's just so powerful and so amazing, Rabbi Sachs says, Burjiev was right to see that the belief that redemption lies in this world, not the next, was responsible for all the features we associate with Jacob, Israel, and the people who bear the name of one who struggled with God and with men and prevailed. If you believe that truth, justice, and happiness that are pursued in this world, then you have to struggle with this world. Sometimes this meant wrestling with idolatry, superstition, paganism, and the whole lexicon of ancient beliefs. Now it means wrestling with secularism, materialism, and consumerism. There were times until the 19th century when much of Europe was illiterate and Jews alone practiced universal education. There were others, the 20th century, for example, when Jews became the targets of fascism and communism, systems that worshiped power and desecrated the dignity of the individual, Judaism is a religion of protest, the counter voice in the conversation of mankind. And it means struggling with God as Moshe and Jeremiah and Job struggled with God. In no other religious literature, certainly not Christianity or Islam, do human beings argue with God. And it's not the heretics who do this in Judaism, but the exemplars and role models of faith 
They did so in the name of justice. Recall Avraham saying, shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? For if justice belongs on earth and not just in heaven, then we not, may not accept seeming injustice. We must protest it. Indeed, it was God himself who empowered Avram and Moshe to do so. Okay. The path chosen by Jacob, Israel, is not for the faint-hearted. It's they used to say. It's hard to be Jew, a Jew. In some ways, it still is. It's not easy to face our fears and wrestle with them, refusing to let go until we've turned them into renewed strength and blessing. But speaking personally, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zechert Tzadik Livracha said, I would have it no other way. Judaism is not faith as illusion, seeing the world through rose-tinted lenses as we would wish it to be. It is faith as relentless honesty, seeing evil as evil, and fighting it in the name of life and good and God. That is our vocation. It remains a privilege to carry Jacob's destiny, Israel's name. Thank you so much for listening. You can access this class and others on my podcast, Accessing Your Best Self, on any of the podcast stations. Sponsorships are available for this class or classes to come in memory of loved ones and merit, refuah shalema, many areas of life. So thank you all for tuning in. Have a Shavua Tov. Thank you, Deborah. You look beautiful. Uh, thank you, Kim. Thank, thank you. Thank you say that. Bye. And I hope that you are inspired to bring the holiness into this world, to raise up the material. And Every bite you take can be a spiritual experience. <laughs> Good luck with that one. I love your enthusiasm. Me too. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you, Thank you okay, Have a good week. Thank you so Take much. Good care. See you Thank on Wednesday. You. Hashem. Stay well. Stay healthy. You too. Thank you. You too. Send any questions.